Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And that's why a lot of my friends at the Philatelist Club say, Kevin, there's never anything new. But then I say, what about the 2014 Macau stamp with a turtle in the mathematical puzzle known as the magic square? Each stamp in the collection features a magic square. Why did this guy look good to me on Tinder? He never stops talking about stamps. He's been yakking about them for an hour. I have to break in and try to save this date. Excuse me, Kevin. The second has the three, yes. When is it? It's just that first dates are to get to know each other better, but you you keep talking about stamp collecting. Oh, you're absolutely right, Kyone. It's a fault of mine. Here I am having dinner with a beautiful, fascinating woman whom I'm barely getting to know. That's a little more like it. Tell me about you. What are your passions? Oh, mainly numismatics. Numismatics? That's right. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of on a coin-collecting hot streak. Last week, I was going through a bargain tub at the coin shop, and I found an 1875 Carson City Seated Liberty Dime, which I bought for only $9. $9! As you Another coin collector? That's three in three Tinder dates. What are the odds? It's like I'm picking them by some ESP I'm not aware of. I've got to put a stop to this. Kion, Kion, stop. For a reason to start with. Let's both take a few seconds where we don't talk about stamps or coins. Do Do you you want to go have sex? I think we see how dangerous it can be to stop talking about your hobby. Here's a show on coin and stamp collecting. And now he has the world's largest collection of Big Y Express Rewards coins. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it turns out that most, most uh, new numismaticians are not interested in those coins. Um, uh, anyway, uh, our introduction, we should say, was done with incredible love and affection for uh, both styles of collectors. And you just think once in a while, probably one of each goes out on a date and what does happen. So today we're going to talk about both. We're going to begin with uh, with numismatics. Numismatics. These are hard words to say. And then we're going to end with philately. See, this is not easy. Uh, even just saying the names is not easy. Uh, so uh, we're going to begin here in studio with me. Harold Kritzman, a professional numismatist, uh, president uh, of the Old Town Coin Collecting and life member of the American Numismatic Society. Uh, has a shop, I believe, in Newington. Uh, and also joining us from the studios of NPR in New York, it's Udo Wartenberg, executive director of the American Numismatic Society. So um, I want to begin just with uh, asking you both a little bit about the mentality of coin collecting, and then we're going to get into some of the stories. All these coins, uh, the most interesting coins seem to have most have interesting stories lines behind them. But maybe before we begin that, um, you know, Harold Kritzman, it seems to me one difference between a, a coin collector and a stamp collector, we'll use the informal terms here, uh, is that um, with a stamp collector, there's less serendipity. Coin collectors, I'm guessing, think that someday somebody's going to hand them back some change and it's going to have something in it. Or they're going to get like a whole bunch of random rolls of the bank and go through them uh, and, and find something. That you don't accidentally by happenstance find some really valuable stamp in the stamps that other people have. But if, if you're a kid and you collect coins, you probably grab the change away from your mother you know, and see whether just by chance uh, she's got something really good. Yes, exactly. Uh, when I was younger and uh, was able to accumulate the massive amount of five dollars, 
I would go to a local bank and uh, get a roll of dimes, take them back, painstakingly look at each and every date, match them against those I had acquired earlier, uh, put them in their respective places in a coin album, and improve those that I thought were needed improving from those that I found, replace them, put them all back in the roll, put a little X on the roll so I know I had already seen that roll and returned it to the bank to repeat that scenario as often as I could, uh, hoping to complete a set of mercury dimes. Uh, that's essentially how we all got started. The, it was the romance of, of finding something historically significant just in your pocket change. And so, uh, Udo Wurtenberg, one thing that I know is that everybody who's not a numismatist thinks he or she owns a coin of some value. I, I said to Harold, I almost I got an 1890 silver dollar. I got an 1880 silver dollar. I got this. I got that. My house. After I've been doing some of the reading for the show, I knew enough not to bring them in. Right. Everybody thinks they've got some really ter- terrific thing. And, and for the most part, I mean, I guess, you know, once in a while they do. But for the most part, the coin that you have, you have because it's a commonly available coin. That That is absolutely right, although you just really never know. I mean, millions of coins are minted and some are rare not. And uh, it's like winning the lottery, you know. And I've had a few of these surprises where people have shown me things and you think, wow, it was, you know, a unique piece. It's not always worth a lot of money. I think that's really the... The thing um, that when I tell people, yes, this is actually something unrecorded, they say, wow, this must be worth a lot of money. And you say, well, maybe $100, you know. <laughs> so uh, and then they're really disappointed because the notion that something is very, very old, you know, like let's say an old Roman coin, like over 2,000 years old, and it's otherwise not known. You think, wow, this this has to be worth a fortune. And unfortunately, it isn't in most cases. And, and Udo, why isn't it? In other words, you say old Roman coin to, coin to me, and I think, well, that's that that sounds really old. That must be worth something. I just did it. I just I just did the fallacy. But but why is it simply because I mean the, the, I know they say if you've got uh, two coins and three buyers, you've got a market. If you've got three coins and two buyers, you don't have a market. Does it come down to something like that, or does it come down to storylines, flaws, value, other kinds of value? Um, I think it's a combination of of these things. So the first thing would be really that when you think of what does a Roman coin mean, it's the Roman Empire lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years and a lot of coins were minted. And so, you know, we have literally millions of these coins around. What we, um, for the United States, for example, it's a relatively recent history. We have, you know, barely, barely, just a little bit over 200 years, not that many coins minted, and much bigger markets. So this is where it comes. So U.S. coins, for example, tend to be, on the whole, much, much more expensive than Roman coins. Um, And this seems to be initially hard to understand, but when you think of, you know, just sheer number available and, uh, you know, people interested in them, you have a lot of Americans that like to collect them and, uh, you know, not really that many. You get this notion why they could be expensive. And then if they're particularly rare, um, this is exactly, you know, two people is enough. And you have these really enormous prices for U.S. coins and, in and, the millions. And Harold, I suppose every time somebody uh, discovers a coin that uh, somebody else might have been looking for, uh, it, it might be very valuable. It also might begin the process of depressing the value of other coins. And we're going to talk here in just a second uh, about the 1933 double eagle. But I think at one point, one of those went for $7.5 million or something. And then like 10 more of them popped up <laughs> I mean, at, at a time when people thought there were maybe only three of them anywhere in the world. It might have been worth you know, over $7 million. Then people start finding them. Well, it works in both directions. Mm. 
One, if something is of limited availability, it does not excite the market be- place because it usually gets put into a collection or a museum and no longer is available to the, to the uh, other collectors who might want to pursue it. When you have 10 other specimens, now you have what ends up being is a bidding war for those 10 specimens. And today, uh, there are those who are seeking out the rarest of the rare. And if you have 10 and, and you have 1,000 people of, of substantial wealth that want to own it, you're going to have a bidding war. And it may end up being even more than the $7 million. Uh, I always use an example of a coin I'm particularly familiar with, which is the 1943 so-called copper cent, of which I had the privilege of possessing for a very short period of time. In fact, it was this discovery piece from 1958 when it appeared at the American Numismatic Association uh, that year. Uh, as a youth, there would be advertisements in, in the comic books that said, you may have a coin in your pocket worth $5,000. Well, you had to send them 10 cents and a three-cent stamp <laughs> to get the catalog and to find out that the coin they were making uh, referral to was the 1943 cent. Well, uh, in 1986, I had the opportunity uh, to acquire that coin uh, when it appeared at sale in New York City. Uh, when I purchased it, uh, it uh, sold for then a record price for a 20th century uh, era coin of well over $15,000. Uh, shoot ahead 30 years. Uh, we have a different marketplace today. Uh, there are 12 known specimens of this coin. Uh, the second finest known to mine came up uh, for uh, sale and brought a world record price in 2014 of $329,000. Knowing now that there are 12 specimens didn't seem to mm-hmm. soften that market at all. And this all had to do, just to repeat or to, to clarify, this all had to do with World War II, right? Copper was sp- uh, scarce. Uh, so, um, well, the, the, <laughs> the uh, in fact, when the 1958 coin surfaced, there was doubt of its authenticity mm-hmm. uh, because the Mint would not admit that such an error could possibly have been produced. So they, uh, the people who possessed the coin did indeed return it to the Mint that paid to have an outside laboratory attest to the fact that it was made of the same bronze alloy as the 1942 previous scent was made from, correct specific gravity and so on. And uh, when I acquired the coin, it actually had the original uh, laboratory uh, tests and x-ray plates that were taken and so on to attest that it was indeed a planchet that had been intended to be struck in 1942, but inadvertently was left in the hopper along with the other coins uh, that were made of steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I, I tell people, the, the number of, of coins that have surfaced so far in this particular case has been 12 uh, out of the so approximately 43 million steel cents that were made that year. So this is, uh, once again, one of these, a lot of these stories seem to involve accidents or serendipity. So this is the war, copper scarce, they needed for bullets, they switched to zinc. People don't like the zinc, right, because it turns things black, yeah. it, you know, and so they get rid of the zinc, they go to steel, and somehow or other, while they're using steel, somehow or other, 12 copper, and I know you guys don't say pennies, right? No, you no, like that, pennies, pennies is a British bad term. Word, bad word, <laughs> That's right? a British term. Yeah. Sense um, twelve tw- uh, copper. We have, we, have, we have good sense here. Yeah. So, um, Uda, let's talk a little bit more about this. The the way in which serendipity or something odd happening or, uh, creates rarity. I don't know if there's a particular coin you want to talk about uh, from that perspective. Well, um, you know, it's often more more historical coins. The one I'm going a little bit back again in the Roman period. You know, there. Mm-hmm. 
um, is one probably what excites people is if there's a story to a coin and that's a really immediate one. And uh, I, I always give this wonderful example of the um, of a coin that refers to the famous Ides of March when Julius Caesar gets killed. And it's a wonderful um, coin on which you see two daggers and um, a little cap of liberty. And it's sort of an advertisement by the killers of Julius Caesar saying, you know, we, we killed him and we liberated the republic. And um, this is probably one of the most iconic coins um, for all sorts of reasons, also particular because um, later on um, in, in, in American, you know, uh, numismatics, when first it's a question of what should this country have for coins, you know, you want to don't have some kind of ruler on it. You know, George Washington famously says, you know, he does not want to be on a coin. Um, liberty as a concept is created. And again, there she wears that. Um, little liberty cap or she's holding it. And, you know, so there is that connection between completely different periods, um, you know, the Roman and, um, you know, then the 18th century, you know, here in America. And I think that excites people and it creates, um, it's not a particular rare coin, this this uh, coin with the two daggers and the, and the cap of liberty, but it commands very high prices because of this really good story. And, and the story includes the fact that after the assassination, Brutus and his army went around looting various locations and getting some of the precious ore that they needed to make these coins, right? Right. And then, you know, it's, it's like really, you know, it's, it's, it's again a war story. And, and, you know, in that sense, you know, it, it is exactly like that. Yes. So, yeah. So, and uh, Harold, you've got some kind of Roman coin yes, here, but I don't I, think it's the same one, is no, it? No, no, no. I have a, a coin that relates exactly to the story she just told of the Eyes of March, uh, May, uh, March the 15th. I have a gold stator of Kozan, which is was exactly uh, the gold that Brutus uh, was to use to pay his mercenary army uh, before he was met by the two Roman generals uh, who pretty much did away with his mercenary army, and and as a result, uh, Brutus was known to, at least we, we felt he was known to, have committed suicide by dropping on his own sword. So we have a coin that literally was part of his war chest, and it was the normal practice at that time uh, to bury the gold that was to be used to pay the mercenaries. And when the whole army was, was, was literally killed, uh, the gold remained in the ground up until uh, just a few decades ago when it uh, was discovered. And here there are these coins that are of Greek origin, uh, but they were made to pay uh, for the Roman army, for the army that uh, that uh, Ruth Brutus had uh, put together. Uh, it's a wonderful coin. It's you, you talk about what makes coin collecting so exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm holding in my hand a coin that might have even been in the hand of Brutus. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's it's the romance. If coins could speak, what stories they might tell is when I tell all of my customers when they hold a coin of such significance within the palm of their hand. And to that end, and, and uh, this may illustrate that I don't comprehend entirely the romance of coin collecting, but Uta, I was sort of wondering what coin collectors, what numismatists think about so, I mean, some of the rarest coins are rare simply because there were like two of them ever made. They were basically test strikes. Uh, there's a $20 gold, gold coin from 1849. I think there were like two of them made. The Smithsonian, invari- or, or if there's one or something, the Smithsonian invariably has it. So it's not something that was in circulation. It was not something that was likely to, to have been in the hand of some romantic historical figure. There's a, it, it, it's much more of a curiosity. But I still get the feeling that if one of those goes on exhibit somewhere, a bunch of new 
numismatists are going to get in line to go see it. Yes, that's true. Although I, I would argue that, you know, the romance is there, but what makes coin collecting such an incredible hobby, and I think it is one of the most democratic hobbies that one could have, because really you could argue literally anyone can buy coins from and from the lowest sort of economic level, and this is something we see both in the American Numismatic Society but also the um, American Numismatic Association, which is much bigger, that people um, come from all sorts of lives and they all come together because you can acquire these things. And then I think it is the story that's interesting, but I think the second thing that makes coin collecting so interesting is there's usually a catalog. Um, coin collecting, in fact, exists barely without some kind of catalog. So you have like a little system and this idea of creating the catalog, creating some um, concept that we organize these coins because they can be organized by dates, they can be organized by rulers, but then you can go into more details. We collect them by by little dyes and then there's like dye varieties and so on. And that is what really appeals to a lot of coin collectors because the story is often the same. You know, they collect I don't know, Morgan dollars, they all look the same, but <laughs> why do people then all collect them? And you can have these conversations that you had at the beginning, you know, of, of the program, you know, where people go on and on and on about like, you know, I counted the the stars and there's this and that and that. And and this is really what, what people are passionate about and it takes a certain mindset. Well there's um Harold, I would assume that there's sort of finding the coin and so in the in the case of the of the scent that you were describing before, you know, just being on the scent of that scent for a long time looking for it, that's sort of a detective story. But also finding a coin and then learning the story of it is another kind of detective story, right? I mean, one thing numismatists do, I assume, is research, well, how did this coin come to exist in as much as it doesn't fit the pattern of uh, of a bunch of other coins that we've looked at? Right. Well, you just made the big distinction between just being a coin collector and being a numismatist. Mm-hmm. Uh, a numismatist is interested in the minutia. Uh, when coins are made, different die pairs are, are put together, mm-hmm. marriages, as I like to refer to them as. And many times one die wears out faster than another. So that gets replaced, and you get another die set. Uh, There are people who will spend their life just documenting these marriages. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the large scent field alone, there's a book that's about an inch and a half thick covering every year that that, the large one-cent pieces were made and how many marriages, in some cases 20 or 30 of a specific, we call them varieties, of that particular year scent exist. And seeking them out is that goal-oriented part of our, our mentality that says we'd like to do something and, and see it from its beginning to its, its end. And it's, the, it's that sense of accomplishment that we seek. Um, you know, I have one more area I want to get to in this segment. Before, but before I do, uh, Uda, I want to bring up, this is a little bit off topic, but maybe not, because you were saying before when the United States was founded, they had to decide what they were going to put on their coins, what they were going to put on uh, any of their uh, their money. And I've always felt that United States money is really boring. Uh, you go to other countries and it's more, the currency is more colorful. The people who are are, are featured, are, are depicted on, on the currency, uh, are often philosophers and poets and, and architects and scientists and opera singers. And, you know, and we have like dead presidents. It just, it just seems like we, we have not showed a lot of imagination or, or colorfulness at the level of currency, or, but imagination in general at our, in our iconography compared to a lot of other countries. Absolutely true. But 
it is just an incredibly conservative country. Um, and I think this is, there are lots of explanations why that is. But um, it is generally true that larger economies, and you can see that, you know, right from the beginning, for example, a comparative case would be um, Athens, which was one of the really big powers in the Greek world. And they, just like the United States, they have on one side, they have a head of the goddess Athena on the other one, an owl, and it just doesn't change. And it goes on for hundreds of years. In that sense, the United States has been a little bit more, um, you know, imaginative, and there's some variety in this. But it has something to do with the circulation. You know, if you change too often, and I think this is, is a problem now with the current quarter series and so on, people often look at this and think, what is this coin I'm holding? You know, there is an easy recognition, and, you know, in particular as a lot of the currency of the United States circulates abroad, in fact, most of the currency of the United States uh, is, is abroad, um, you want it to be recognized immediately, not have something weird that changes every few years in, in some rainbow color. So, um, so, yeah, I, I want to talk quickly about a couple of other things, including um, uh, occasional discoveries of large amounts of coins uh, that may not have come to their resting place entirely legally. I'm thinking about the, uh, Harold, maybe you can start this off, about the Saddle Ridge Hoard. This is the California couple that find, find all these Liberty Head gold coins yes. buried on their property a, a few years ago. That's, that's actually an amazing story. Uh, being that I also sell metal detectors, I'm with people that are coin shooters and are always hoping to find uh, something spectacular. In this particular case, it didn't require any other instrument except for their eyes. And a nice summer day after a heavy rainstorm where a couple was walking their dog uh, along a path, uh, I guess maybe less traveled, who knows. And there ahead of them, they saw exposed by the heavy rainfall a can. And when they examined the can closely, they realized that there were coins within the can, not just coins, but many coins. And they were all a yellow color. Uh, this got them got all excited. It's one of the biggest single hoards of twenty dollar, ten dollar, and five dollar gold pieces uh, that uh, I think has has happened in the modern era. Uh, it was tied in. Hopefully, uh, they hoped at that time, uh, at least the people at West Fargo did, that it was part of a robbery that had occurred uh, several decades earlier, and uh, and uh, that uh, was quickly. Uh, found not to be true because that robbery consisted mostly of $20 gold pieces, and this was literally a mixture of 20s, 10s, and $5 gold. Um, and Uta, there must be interesting ways about uh, how, how various countries, governments, uh, historical entities try to figure out where something like that should go. I mean, it's on private property, probably here in America, private property is, is like everything, uh, but uh, there, uh, there are coins of historical interest, so who gets to own them? Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I took a very public stand on, on, on this particular case because to me um, this story is, is sort of sad because although, um, you know, what Hal just said, this this is a wonderful story, but there's actually no corroboration. This is true. Um, we have no idea where this was found. Um, uh, <laughs> I think the name of the couple, um, wonderful, Mary and John, I mean, they were so terrified that they wouldn't even give the name, and it was like really the dealer um, that sold this material, creating this this whole story, um, which in any other country that I can think of, um, this would have been something that maybe the Smithsonian or some sort of larger institution um, through the government would have purchased because what we really don't know about this is, you know, why, why was it buried? Where was it buried? What was the story? We only know roughly. We don't even know exactly what coins were in there. And, um, you know, I... I 
when when I wrote about this, um, I gave this wonderful example of a very similar case actually in London a few years ago, where in a, um, a hoard also of American um, twenty eagle pieces was found in in the borough of Hackney, and um, the, it was declared as treasure trove. This this is something that uh, exists in England, and um, actually the original owners of the hoard. Um, were found and it was returned to them. It was a Jewish couple that had fled Nazi Germany. And so mm. there was a way of actually tracing who owned this. Now, this is quite rare, but the history is sort of lost. And I think the history of the United States to some extent is lost, that we don't record any hordes here. Um, it's all privately owned on land. And um, it's it's to me rather sad. And, you know, people say, oh, well, it's just really who needs to know this. We have other ways of knowing about it. But I think this is sort of eventually going to be a misguided concept. All right. Well, one last thing I want to talk about during this segment is the issue of counterfeits. And obviously uh, counterfeiting has been around for a long, long time. Maybe it's been around for as long as there have been coins uh, to counterfeit. Um, my understanding is that the Victorians, they were so good at detail and stuff like that, they were really good at counterfeiting. So, um uh, in general, Harold, I mean, uh, as somebody, uh, obviously, you don't want to buy a counterfeit coin, or maybe you do want to buy a counterfeit coin if it's a historically important counter. There, there are important fakes like the Class II, uh 1804 silver dollar. Uh, but uh, talk a little bit about that role in your world, oh, in your business. Okay. Just met an interesting story about the 1804 silver dollar, which uh, was not made in 1804, it was actually made in 1834. Uh, the most famous being part of a set that was to go to the King of Siam. Right. Uh, however, contemporary counterfeits have gained a collectability in their own right, a contemporary counterfeit being one that was actually made during which the coin was current. Mm-hmm. I have in my own possession several of those, and most impressive of one is a three-cent silver piece uh, from the 1860s. And one said, why would anyone bother counterfeiting a three-cent silver piece? Well, in fact, it wasn't made of silver. It was made of a, of a, a silver-like alloy. Uh, and it was uh, the dies were hand cut. Uh, there is a star on these particular coins, a, f- a six pointed star, and the points of the star cross over each other <laughs> because they were hand cut. Mm-hmm. And but when you realize the, what three cents was in 1862, uh, that's like saying uh, thirty or forty dollars today in terms of what it possibly could have bought you. Uh, so somebody sitting there and taking a half a cent's worth of material and turning it into three cents was a profitable enterprise. Uh, those contemporary counterfeits are very collectible today. Our big problem is today's counterfeits and how and why they're being made and by whom they're being made and how devious the methods they're they're using. Uh, we just had a, a case that just popped up just a little over two weeks ago of a 2015 American Silver Proof Eagle, one of the premier products of our United States Mint, sold at a very high premium because of the quality uh, and presentation uh, for collectors that the Mint goes through for these particular coins. And approximately 15 counterfeits of these coins showed up at a large coin show being offered for sale. Uh, To tell you how devious, the boxes and the certification papers were apparently authentic, but the coin that had been replaced within that box was not. Mm. So, Udo Wardenberg, in a world of 3D printers uh, and, and, and high-tech programming, I would imagine counterfeiting is you know, poised to take a quantum leap, as Harold is suggesting, into whole new realms of sophistication. I think that's unfortunately true. Um, 
And it is really the how easily something is reproduced. Um, I deal primarily with um, coins from the ancient period where you have a certain advantage that you know each coin is a handmade object. It's not machine-made, and so they all look slightly different. And so if you sometimes one of the easier way of detecting a counterfeit is to find, you know, exactly the same kind of scratches on a coin, you know. And for a long time, coins sold, um, which were made from um, copies of the British Museum collection, you know, they just recreated dies of these coins and then restruck them and they sold for, you know, six figures in all the major auctions. They were relatively easy to detect once you, you knew what the source was. But um, with ever more coins on the market, it, it is, it's become a really big problem. And, um, you know, I think that that's where research comes into it. And in fact, um, and I have mentioned these these dye studies, you know, people looking at the marriages between them. And it's, in fact, things like this that help, you know, if you have the wrong combination, if you have like the whole scholarly and, and sort of uh, set up of these dyes and you suddenly find something that doesn't look right. You think, aha, something isn't isn't right. So the more you read, the more research you do on your material, um, the more you might be able to beat um, counterfeiting. But it is almost a part of collecting. I would say to people, you know, you, you just have to live with it. Um, if you want to be a good collector, you're going to buy um, something that is wrong and don't always blame the other people. You know, it's it's... No, you but, know, I'm, no. I'm on the side of the dealers there often because I often, you know, think, wow, this thing is good. And then and then I learn something much later, sometimes years later, it suddenly hits me that something was actually a counterfeit mm. or the other way around, which is even more dangerous. You know, you think something is fake and you realize suddenly, no, actually it wasn't. <laughs> All right. We've got to grab a break here. When we come back, we're going to tell you a little bit more about why we're doing this show. There's a special local tie in. And in fact, Uta Wurtenberg is coming to Hartford next week. Next week, next week. smallest coin in the land. And holds the smallest coin in the land. Holds the smallest coin. All right. Uh, we've been talking about uh, numismatists, uh, the people who collect, evaluate, uh, study the history of coins. Uh, in just a second, uh, we're going to talk to uh, a philatelist. Philatelists are, are the corresponding uh, people in the world of stamps. Uh, but we have to spend a few minutes here just quickly talking about one of the triggers for doing this show, and that is, in fact, uh, some news at the Mark Twain House. Uh, so Cindy Lovell is the executive director of the Mark Twain House. Uh, tell us what's going on uh, vis-a-vis coins and your patron saint. Well, we all know the Mark Twain quote that the lack of money is the root of all evil. So uh, this year, 2016, the U.S. Mint has launched two commemorative coins uh, that bear Mark Twain's image. There's a $5 gold coin, a $1 silver uh, coin, and these were the result of legislation that was passed back in 2012. So these coins are legal tender, but they carry a surcharge with them. And uh, that way, at no cost to taxpayers, the proceeds from the sale of these coins will benefit not only the Mark Twain House here in Hartford, but three other nonprofit Mark Twain organizations. And, and so where, where do people, I mean, Harold's got them right here, but uh, so you can get them from Harold. That's one answer. But I mean, where do people typically get these things? Typically, they log on to the Mint's website, usmint.gov, and uh, click on the commemorative button. It takes you right to the Twain coins. The silver coin runs around $50. The gold coin is about $400. And uh, the surcharge is, is relatively small compared to that. On the silver, it's 10 On the 
um, gold, it's 35, but that's built right into the sale price. And we're sending folks to usmint.gov. But if they buy locally, uh, as from our friend Harold here, uh, we're giving away passes to the Mark Twain House with the uh, purchase of the coins. Yeah, oh, that's, that's nice. And Harold, your shop is in Newington? In Newington on the Berlin Turnpike. On the Berlin Turnpike, okay. So um, uh, we should say Uta Wardenberg is coming to the Mark Twain House and Museum on Tuesday of next week. That's the April 5th uh, from 7 to 9 to celebrate uh, this release. Uh, Harold has just showed me the coins. They're beautiful. And, and Uta Wardenberg, I mean, how often does this happen? How many coins uh, of this type are, are typically struck over the course of a year? Or is it just one uh, well. It's two, um, exactly as, as Cindy said. It's two, it's it's basically there used to be many more, but then Congress said no, it couldn't be more than two because there were too many of these commemorative coins. And it is in fact um, when I was the chair of the Citizens Coinage Advisory Committee that oversees you know what goes on these coins. Um, it was an extraordinarily difficult process, and I congratulate you know um, that that this worked because it really does help non for profits. Um, you know, this this is a relatively wonderful way in, in hard times like now to raise money and uh, nothing better than for Mark Twain, isn't it? So um, it is, um, you know, the more people buy, um, because once the year's over, um, you can't buy them from the U.S. I think you, you it's, it's just for that year, you know. So it's important that people support it. Yeah, Harold, we're going to say Right. That. I'm going to tell you that uh, when you do go online to buy from the men, frequently you're going to see that they have totally sold out. Uh, which is wonderful for the program. Uh, in the last uh, several weeks since the introduction of these coins, they've already sold out at least two to three times on the silver editions and at least three or four times of the gold editions. Uh, I try to maintain an inventory of them, but even for me it's difficult. Uh, one of the wonderful things about buying these coins is many of the people who come in to purchase the coin have never yet been to the Mark Twain house. Mm. And when I give them the ticket... They say, I've lived in Connecticut for 30 years or 40 years. I've never been to the Mark Twain house. Now I have a reason to go. <laughs> and they get very enthusiastic, and this is opening up the door, right. I hope, to a more successful uh, uh, historical location like the Mark Twain yeah. house is. People, you already had a reason to go. But um, so, Cindy, um, you know, we were talking before about how ah, American currency, the regular currency, is kind of boring. It's it's dead presidents. And, and they look pretty formal. Um, Twain was a hellraiser. You know, I mean, he really wasn't necessarily the most uh, staid and uh, dignified guy all the time. So um, I imagine there was some kind of some debate about, for example, whether to put his, any of his bad habits uh, on the coin there with him. I have had people comment on the fact that the silver dollar, which uh, is kind of targeted to young collectors, get kids in the door collecting, uh, the design is beautiful and kids do respond to it. But the uh, obverse of that coin shows Mark Twain smoking a a pipe. Mm -hmm. And the pipe uh, is emitting smoke. And in the smoke, you'll see, if you look closely, it's very easy to see uh, Jim and Huck on the raft. So kind of conjuring that image of uh, two of his most famous characters. The reverse of that coin is gorgeous. It shows an open book as a raft on the Mississippi River. Uh, Jim and Huck are perched there on the raft, and uh, the the, uh, uh, knight from the Connecticut Yankee is leaping across the book there on the river. You see the famous jumping frog from Calaveras County. So it's a really nice coin to use with kids, I think, to open the conversation not just about coin collecting but about literature. Uh, I recently did a little stint on the Home Shopping Network where they were selling the Mark Twain coins, believe it or not. And uh, that was kind of the topic of conversation was a great way to introduce this to kids. 
All right. Well, listen, uh, this has been fascinating. There'll be more fascinating stuff uh, to come on April 5th when Uta Wardenberg, executive director of the American Numismatic Society, comes to the Mark Twain House. Uh, Cindy Lovell will be there because she's the executive director of the Mark Twain House. Harold Kritzman has been showing me these coins. They really are beautiful, these Twain commemorative coins. They're beautiful. They're ornate. Uh, you can get to know more about Harold through Old Town Coin Collecting, uh, and that's in Newington on the Berlin Turnpike. All right. When we come back. We're switching. It's going to be totally different when we come back. Stamps. Who would have thought it? I offered someone a Sacagawea dollar in a bus station, and I think the undercover policeman misheard me. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Stephanie Reef. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve Carell. For show pages, articles, and copies of the Here and Now staff commemorative stamp, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the mysteries of ALS. Now... Back to Colin. All right. Uh, so we're going to switch from coins to stamps. The coin people are gone. Uh, Mike Frechette is in here to talk about stamps. I don't know about these coin people. Who would collect coins when you could collect stamps, Mike? I just I don't understand it. Uh, Mike Frechette is president of the New Haven Philatelic Society. Um, I, I do feel as though I love stamps. I mean, I'm, I don't collect stamps, but I love them. I do feel they are an affordable piece of art, you know, for pocket change. You get to buy something that uh, often an artist has designed that somebody has worked very hard to make beautiful. And then for your pocket change, you not only get to look at it, but then you put it on something and that something gets sent somewhere else, unless you're a stamp collector. <laughs> well, that's true. <clears throat> Excuse me. The um, There's an essential difference between collecting stamps and collecting coins. And one of the things, I was thinking about this before I came on the show, but one of the, the differences is that stamps are a one-use item. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, they fulfill one transaction and that's it. Uh, coins fulfill many transactions, go through many hands through their, their life. So that the stamp itself, there's, there's two ways you can actually collect them. One is uh, if it's been used on a letter and the second mainly is if it's never been used. The, 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 uh, the way you collect these things is so varied it would take – uh, literally an hour for me to go through all the different ways you can collect stamps or covers or whatever. What what determines value? I mean, one of the things, obviously, that makes something exotically valuable is um, a flaw, I mean, or something that went wrong. Like, there's the famous inverted jenny, right, where the plane is upside down. Yeah, the the jenny is the most famous uh, error in the United States. The What happened there was the, there was a sheet of 100 stamps that was printed was bought down in Washington, D.C. by a stamp collector who realized the planes were upside down. He said, do you have any more of these? The post office guy said, I want them back. He said, no way. And he walked out. Um, there's been other famous inverts in the United States. The the one after that was the Hammersholt invert in the 60s where the post office said, well, everybody should have this error. So they went and they printed millions of stamps with the upside down uh, building, I believe it was, in the Hammersholt invert. There was another famous one. I believe it was in the 80s. It's called the CIA invert, hmm. which um, they printed a candle upside down in a United States stamp. It was called the CIA invert because it was actually found by CIA employees who decided that the agency should own it. They should own it. So they bought – I think there were 96 copies still left. Um, and that 
caused a tremendous amount of problems later on legally because the government said, well, you government employees, those, those are our stamps, not yours to sell. You know, uh, do people co- – I mean, there's a lot of reasons to collect anything, right? I mean, some people want to collect something because it's rare, maybe because it's potentially even valuable. But I would think with stamps – well, first of all, let's back up and say one thing. One difference between stamps and coins, it seems to me people don't happen upon – stamps quite as often. There isn't as much serendipity, right? I mean, you're not going to probably, you're not going to find them certainly sitting in the ground where somebody's buried them. No. Ch- chances are, if you've, if you've got a stamp, it's because somebody collected it. Maybe. 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 Um, actually, there's, there's a whole bunch of us who buy what's known as a box lot because we, we love digging through stuff <laughs> hoping to yep. find, you know, that treasure. And occasionally do. You find things that, that people may have missed or in stamp collecting, knowledge is everything. I mean, if you don't know what you're looking for, you can never find it. Um, and a lot of the old, U, not so much old U.S. stamps, but stamps that were issued in the early part of the 19 or the 20th century, um, because the post office was doing so many experiments with the stamp, mm-hmm. there's so many different varieties, some of which are quite rare. Um, people tend to miss them because they don't know what they're looking for. Um, the other reason to collect them is because they're beautiful, right? I mean, a lot of yeah. these things, it, it really is art. As a matter of fact, I, I felt like we couldn't do this show without um, including uh, Norm Gunderson, I think that's his name, the character in Fargo, who's painting a picture of a mallard that's going to be a stamp. So here's Norm. They announced it. They announced it? Yeah. So? Three cent stamp. Your mallard? Yeah. That's terrific. It's just a three cent. It's terrific. Hoffman's blue winged teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent. Oh, for peace. Of course they do. Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps. Yeah? When they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones. Yeah. I guess. You know, Mike Frischette, one thing that I worry about is, I mean, I actually, I really do seriously like stamps. And when I go to the post office, I'm very fussy about which stamps I buy just for my own use and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm showing me all of them so I can pick the ones out that I like. But I also have discovered here that when I start talking about that, all of the young people that I work with and everybody here tends to be pretty uh, young, they start giving me these funny little because, like, they've barely used a stamp ever in the past five years or something. I mean, obviously, it's a culture that's, that's in a little bit of a crisis, right? Do you worry that the stamp itself is kind of a somewhat endangered commodity or at least that it won't be treated with the kind of loving care where you select just the right artist to paint the mallard, you know, portrait or, or whatever? There, there is a danger today in that people do not use the mail system the way they used to. <clears throat> the... Um, in the early part of the century, in, the, in around 1910, 1920, the primary way of communication was through postcards and stamps, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, uh, people don't do that. They do email. Mm-hmm. But it, it, there are things in an email that you do not get that you would get from a letter. Mm-hmm. For example, the letter has something you can feel, you can touch, you can actually taste it, you can smell it. You cannot do that uh, through the Internet. And when I, when I try to talk to young people, they look at me and they say, well, that's true. Hmm. Um, people don't send letters anymore. And th- that's part of the problem that we have with, with stamp collecting. As it turns out, you asked me about rare stamps earlier. There are things in the last 20, 30 years in terms of U.S. stamps that are far more valuable than stamps that were issued 100 years ago. And the reason for that is people aren't using them. 
I, I found a quote. Uh, there's a, a guy who blogs as punk philatelist. Uh, he's, I think, in um, Australia. Uh, he writes, my friends think stamp collecting involves me soaking stamps off letters and placing them, placing them lovingly in a pretty album decorated with crayon drawings of flowers like I'm six blanking years old. They don't understand philately. It transcends collecting stamps and delves into the how and why and when of human communication. The stuff my friends love on expensive hip- hipster stationery is what I love about items of commercial mail. They're evocative. They tell stories of how people lived in the past, everything from the majestic to the mundane, as you soon learn if you're lucky enough to find one with its letter still enclosed. And they can be beautiful to look at, which is always a nice bonus. That you know, I think that's a nice summation of how much more there is there. It, it, it isn't just about that particular stamp with a goat on it. No, it, it's far more than that. It's it's part of the when when you stop looking at the pictures, and I and I don't lessen anybody who collects them because they are works of art. There are whole groups that that specialize in in topicals. They'll collect ants on stamps. They'll collect spiders on stamps. They'll collect zebras on stamps. Um, but the, another aspect of it is is postal history, where you take a look at a letter or something like that, and you know who sent it, where was it going to, what kind of countries did it pass through, what kind of problems did it have. There mm-hmm. are there are people who specialize their their whole lives in trying to figure out, you know, how did an airmail get from point A to point C. Um, many, the thing about stamp collecting is every single letter that goes through the mail is unique. Mm-hmm. Absolutely unique. It's it's it tells you a story if you're willing to look for it. And and I know there's also the whole question of post offices uh, that that letters go through. Um, I think you've got some kind of project or that you've been involved in of trying to collect uh, things from all, all of the Connecticut post offices. Yeah, the New Haven Philatelic Society. A couple of years ago, we had a member who uh, convinced the society that we really ought to collect an example from all the post offices that have existed in Connecticut. Most people don't know that, but there's over 700 post offices that have existed in the state. I mean, there's 169 towns, I believe, but over 700 post offices. A lot of these don't even exist anymore. Uh, My favorite one is the one called Ore Hill, which had existed up in the northwestern part of the state where they actually uh, mined iron ore and they actually smelted uh, steel and the anchor of the U.S. Co- Constitution, I think, was uh, made up in uh, Mount Riga, up there in uh, Salisbury. I don't know if that's the same place as Or Hill, but yeah, there are all these little post offices with names like Suckyog and stuff like that. And I, in fact, I almost bought a house in Canton on Cherry Brook Road that had a post office on it, which I mean, a functioning post office, which you effectively rented to the U.S. Postal Service. My father talked me out of doing this, but um, but like tiny little post office. So the idea would be to have things that are canceled out of that post office. Yeah, what we're trying to do is get an example of a letter or postcard that has a postmark from every single uh, post office within the state of Connecticut. So, um, first of all, uh, if anybody, if you've got like some rarity like that, you should, is there like a place to contact the New, the New Haven Philatelic we, Society? Well, there's a couple ways you can do it. Uh, one is we are on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash NHPS1914. Uh, and you can write a note to me on the Facebook page. You can also come to, we have a fourth Sunday, actually it's a stamp and coin show, although I didn't mention that to the New Madisons, ah. um, that we hold down in New Haven. Uh, or you can come to, we have a meeting every Tuesday on Chapel Street. It's uh, 1205 Chapel Street, New Haven. 
and we'd be glad to see anybody around 7.30. So um, setting that apart, the, the Connecticut Post Office project, are there, are there things for you that are kind of white whales or grails or something, something that you hope you run across someday or, or can obtain at an affordable price? Are there special things you wish you had? Truthfully, yeah, no, no, and, and so why is that? Is just because you collect in a different way? Um, part of what I'm interested in is uh, some obscure things that nobody else but me would be interested in. For instance, uh, illegal land, mm-hmm. which is actually uh, they issued some stamps for a while and then they don't issue them anymore. Uh, I collect Newfoundland. Newfoundland has some great rarities that are like. Enormous prices because of uh, early air mail that went through Newfoundland. Um, the problem with that is, is once you have it, then you worry about it. How do you protect it? How do you keep it out of you know thieves' hands and all that? Stamp collectors, I think, like coin collectors, are are kind of worried about you know potential losses through theft and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is see the play American Buffalo, which is about stealing a coin, not a stamp, to realize that, that there would be things to uh, to worry about. I have to ask about Newfoundland stamps. Do they have, like, seals and crabs and things like that on them? Or? Actually, they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have seals. They have the Newfoundland dog, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, crabs, fishing boats, coal industry, all that stuff. I mean, that's the thing about stamps is that, that because they are issued far, 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 far more frequently than coins are, that you just can sort of get a sense of culture, right? I mean, right now we're, uh, as a culture nationally, our pop culture is obsessed with superheroes. So guess what? There are all these superhero stamps uh, brought up. I can tell by your expression on your face that you don't care about these superhero stamps. Well, I do in one sense. I don't in another sense. But, I mean, the post office, people collect all sorts of topics, including comic book heroes. The the thing I've said about stamps is they they send to represent the culture of the country Mm. at the given period of time. So when you look at the early, early stamps, uh, they have a bunch of kings and queens and all that on them. Uh, modern stamps have much more. Now it's uh, soccer. There's a lot of soccer. We're going to have to wrap up here. It was so great talking to Mike Frechette, uh, president of the New Haven Philatelic Society. We did it. We did coins and stamps in one show. How did we fit it all in? Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a show about ALS. Join us for that. new message let's see Uh, 10 years a stamp club president and i send my anniversary card as an email